0: Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening today. I am happy to have with me to talk about her fabulous novel, Matilda Empress, the author, Lise Aaron. Lise, how are you? Fine. Thank you for having me. It's absolutely my pleasure and I'm going to do what I always do on these podcasts which are voice only no visuals uh, and talk about visual stuff and compliment you on your cover art it is absolutely amazing it's it's absolutely stunning
1: thank you Uh, I like to make the joke that you should please judge my book by its cover
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah well that's I I mean seriously uh, with this cover no one's going to walk past this and not open it and, and take a look. So, uh, so good job to, to all of you, you and your team. But so this, this story uh, is about Matilda Empress, uh, and I'd like for you to just give our listeners today uh, a little bit of a taste of who Matilda is and what, what her story is.
1: Well, she was the daughter of Henry I of England uh, in the 12th century, and she was married off to the Holy Roman Emperor, but he died when she was still a very young woman, and she hadn't given birth to an heir. So she came back to England, and because her brother had had died, her father decided that she should be heir to his dual empire of, of England and Normandy. Uh, the Barons even swore allegiance to her, but when the time came when her when her father died, uh, she wasn't she wasn't there, and a cousin of hers, in collusion with um, with some others, stole her throne. So my book really concerns the civil war between uh, Matilda and her cousin Stephen, who served as England's king um, illegitimately during this period. And, and during this period of terrible civil war, England was thrown into, uh, the empire that had been so glorious uh, under Henry I was thrown into disarray. Um, many, many people died. Agriculture was destroyed. Uh, none of the barons felt secure with their holdings because there were more than one claimant to every important territory, to every important title. There was anarchy and uh, and lawlessness. There were even no one was even sure who had the right to, to create coinage and certainly who had the ra- right to create law. So during this terrible period of devastation, while Matilda and Stephen fought um, a very slow moving battle uh, where years would pass and very little progress was made to determine who was um, going to be uh, triumphant, I decided to explore their personal relationship at the same time because they had actually grown up together in her father's court and there had been a little bit of gossip about how close they were. And I thought in terms of creating a story, how interesting would it be to explore potentially a frustrated romantic relationship between two antagonists in a major civil war? So my book is really equal parts love and war, with a lot of other things thrown in, like magic and philosophy and poetry and and um, everything that makes for good historical fiction. Uh, but you know, maybe I've exaggerated the central relationship between the characters, but there was a hint of contemporary curiosity about it, and I thought you know that's the beauty of historical fiction, where you can um, shine your light on on. Questions and and answer them for yourself because you, you're in the fiction section of the bookstore. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, so that's what the book's about. Uh, yeah, I and I have to say the the foreword that you wrote for the book uh, really really drew me in, and the first line says, "Matilda Empress is a book about a woman who does not get what she wants," and that. That single sentence is so powerful and such a great hook for, uh, you know, for a reader who has picked up your book because of the beautiful cover art. (laughs) So it's 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 a great way to start the story and uh, introduce the story. Uh, It's a fascinating theme. But you've told us a little bit about what the book is about would you be willing to read a little bit for our listeners? Sure, um, just to, like before I do so, I just to
1: um further what you said, I also think you know the topic of girl interrupted or mm-hmm. the glass ceiling, I mean, these are also besides being his historically interesting questions about the fate of someone who was meant to have a great destiny and who was thwarted. Uh, you know, it's also, I think modern readers can identify that. And because I'm exploring um, ambition and frustration in both a political realm, but also a personal realm, I think it's quite a timeless story.
0: Uh, it, it, You know, that's absolutely true. And that was something that I wanted to to get into with you. And I'd like to cover this a in more depth a little bit later on in the podcast, but the the cover description aptly notes that the book, and I'm quoting here, explores what is at stake when a strong woman at the center of great upheaval refuses to play by the rules laid out for her. And it kind of gave me shivers because that's so relatable. We're talking about a woman who existed in the 12th century, but we're in the 21st century, and that the the themes in this book are still so relatable. It's kind of mind blowing. It's it's uh, it's sad for women, but uh, it's it's incredibly relevant. So anyway, so I'm sorry, uh, I I digress. Please, uh, please, where where are you going to read from?
1: I'm going to read from um, the first chapter and I'm going to describe the moment when Matilda is returning to England as a young widow, returning in the hopes of being her father's heir, just in the immediate uh, aftermath of her first husband's death. I am the dowager Empress Matilda, 24 years old and a widow. I travel on a ship bound for England, my homeland. I enjoy the sensation of speed and relish the early morning fog that surrounds me like a cloak. I always stand upwind from the crew's stench and stretch my face into the gusts of fresh air that swell our sails and tangle my veil and braids. I inhale deeply of the brisk breeze, for it is the breath of our Heavenly Father. To keep my mind occupied, I chant the blessings of Christ. Tranquility, amour, purity, discipline, strength, form, rule, custom, terminus, road, counselor, foundation, heart, blaze, majesty, essence, lion of creation. Amen. Each day I scan the sky for the seabirds that will herald the coastline as vultures are the harbingers of a corpse. Death and upheaval are two faces of the same coin. Cancer defeated my husband at Utrecht, revoking my whole future. If I had had a son, I would have reigned in his stead during his minority. Instead, the Duke of Saxony is elevated to the throne of the Holy Roman Empire. And having turned over most of the imperial regalia, all but one seal, I am put forth on the ocean to a new beginning. Although many forget my English origins, I do not aspire to wed any of the minor German princes who compete for my hand nor do I wish to immure myself in any European convent to spend the rest of my days outside the ebb and flow of the world's affairs. Now that I return to my native land, my father, his majesty, Henry I, determines that I shall be queen of England and Normandy. The English and Norman barons must accept my father's daughter if he is to have no son. This new destiny suits my aspiring spirit. Educated to reign, I am well used to wielding authority. I will serve my father's family as I did my husband. I will be a splendid queen, worthy of praise. Often I am spellbound by the waves breaking tumultuously around the prow of the ship. Do their force and crash echo my inner strength? Will I be able to sail into my father's kingdom and claim my due? Behind the stern of our vessel, the sea has been flattened, so that a white trail of foam stretches out behind us. Need I fear that I am not the boat, but the water, deflated, suppressed, made quiet again? I do not have complete confidence in what is to come. For who am I? What is my worth? I am the holy Roman empress. There is none who sits higher or comes between me and the throne of heaven but I am my father's unmarried daughter to be disposed of according to his will. I can walk among the English court with my head held aloft, with none daring to meet my eyes, and yet I resume my place as an ivory pawn upon King Henry's chess set. On the other side of Europe, I dispense the law with an iron fist, and now I shall be forced to sheathe my mail in silk and manipulation. My face is struck from the imperial coinage, I have lost my currency. I am the Holy Roman Empress, but my greatness tumbles overboard into the abyss of the ocean. To the world, I am no one, a child, a head without a crown. I must remember that I am stripped of my honors. It will serve me no purpose to cling to my former status, to remember with pride that I was divine. This will be a hard lesson, that of renunciation. How swiftly shall I learn it?
0: Wow. So the imagery in uh, the the passages that you read is just beautiful. Um, l- let me ask you something. Now, no, Matilda was a real person, a real empress. And my question is, what drew you to her? And what drew you to this period, the, the 12th century? And I know um, from uh, uh, doing my little stockarazzi pre-podcast research that you were a history and lit major undergrad. But was, was that the genesis of, of your interest in this, in this person and this, this period, or was it something else?
1: Well, actually, it wasn't, because when I, um, I did major in history and literature, and then I went on um, to get a PhD in English literature, but my period was 18th century, And I taught an 18th and 19th century novel, and I focused on the novel of manners. So very different um, kind of story. And I think what I liked about the 18th century in particular was that people thought of it as quite a light, almost frivolous time. Sort of before the French Revolution, you know, it seemed to be quite a frothy time. Mm -hmm. And I... I actually didn't see the 18th century to be that at all. I mean, to me, I couldn't get past all the Gothic elements. And mm-hmm. I used to write about sort of seedy underbelly of the 18th century. And why was it that novels of manners of, at that time were so similar to Gothic novels, which were novels of horror, um, even though they were very stylized. It still, I, I thought there wasn't, there was a lot more darkness than the period got credit for. And, uh, with when i went to sort of switch gears and and have a a second a second career a different one i uh, part of me was perhaps afraid to write a book about the 18th century because i was supposed to know everything about it mm-hmm. and that was quite daunting and mm-hmm. I, I was getting more and more interested in the medieval period and i set about to to do that on my own and it did feel liberating to write about something in which I was not an expert or wasn't supposed to know anything. I could just surprise people with what I knew as opposed to disappointing them. Right. Didn't know. And now I maybe I should have been a medievalist all along. But the thing about the medieval period, at least, I mean, this my book set in the early Middle Ages, is that it's a period that sometimes people even think of it, They confuse it with the Dark Ages, but actually the 12th century was a great period of Renaissance, partly due to the Crusades and opening up of Eastern ideas and thought and and medicine and science to the West. But in in other ways, with the birth of the romantic poetry, and there was so much going on. So there's a lot more light than this dark period gets credit for. And and I think that even though my book is in some ways dark, um, certainly... Certainly it's dark, but yet I do spend a lot of time talking about the opening up of knowledge. And even though some of the scientific knowledge that was trickling into uh, the English court, it was not really understood in, as science. It was very much thought of sometimes as magic, sometimes it was confused with religion, uh, but that's exciting to explore, too, the way that herbal medicine can be understood as magic or as a miracle or dark magic or light magic, black magic or white magic, when really it's just science. <laughs> I, I, I had fun with that. So, I mean, I think that there's really no way to um, to, to really limit any period to you know, one atmosphere, for sure
0: mhm mm-hmm. and that kind of dovetails into what we were saying before about how relatable this character is uh that matilda although she exists in the 12th century she has she's facing some of the same issues that we're facing today in the 21st century and and i found her incredibly relatable as as a reader and Possibly because some of her declarative sentences um, early in the book, uh, you start you start a section with her saying disappointment stirs my competitive nature, and in another section early in the book, you start out with the declarative sentence, "I am my father's daughter," and I think it was that was part of what got me and got me in her head. But I want to know from a craft perspective, how did you accomplish this on the page? How did you deliver us Matilda and what's going on inside her head and what she's experiencing on the page? And how did you make her so relatable? And I know, again, from what you share in the foreword to this book, that initially, as a writer, you felt Matilda wasn't working, and early readers even said she wasn't relatable, and then you revised and revised to make her, in my opinion as a reader, incredibly relatable. So how how did you do that? Well, what I thought was interesting
1: was that when I would get feedback that my heroine was too autocratic, I'm <laughs> thinking to myself. Well, she's an empress. And of course she's autocratic. Right. And right. I didn't really think at first that she should be particularly relatable, except to those of us who are empresses inside ourselves.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: empresses okay. without a crown. But, I mean, I really was surprised. And, and, and I wondered also about whether a book about an emperor would have been given the same feedback. I mean, when there's a wonderful book called Memoirs of Hadrian by Marguerite Dorsenar. It was one of the first books of historical fiction that made me think this is something I might want to do. And I don't think anyone was thinking the Emperor Hadrian acted too imperial. So I think that's the point. Isn't it interesting to go inside the mind of an empress? And I didn't expect her to be this, a modern woman. I didn't expect her to be uh, necessarily sympathetic. I didn't know that that was my job. I thought my job was just to explore what her nature might be, not to make it appealing. But I was quickly, or actually not quickly, over a period of time, um, I was given to understand that I did need to do that. And that was required to, um, to draw people in so that they could put themselves in her shoes. And and I struggled because in the 12th century, certainly, it wasn't a time of introspection. I mean, people lived their lives from the outside in, not from the inside out the way we do. And everything that she did as an empress, even to win over support, those things were public. Either they were public rituals of religion or of power. And she sort of created these tableaux where she might be looked at or even written about, but it wasn't about her feelings. It was about her performing certain acts that were symbols. So I thought it seemed to be quite a big task to turn that into an inside story. So I I do feel that I, I did a lot to draw the reader to her side, but I didn't do it by the way that maybe the person giving me the criticism expected. I mean, if I wanted to show her inner turmoil, I would have her do things actively. Maybe she would cast a spell. Maybe she would say a prayer. Maybe she would embroider a pearl or or stitch a symbolic image on the hem of her gown. I didn't have her... I didn't talk as much about feelings as maybe they would have liked, (laughs) Um, particular gatekeepers along the way that that I came across it. But ultimately, I did have to find a way to express her emotional suffering. And Mm -hmm. again, there's one moment when her father dies and when she discovers that her cousin has stolen her throne. That, that exact moment was one that was pointed out to me that I had to flush out and really make poignant. And I did have her in a sort of a rel- almost religious trance and, and in a moment of self-flagellation. And, and by using what she did, I could then get to, to her emotions. Uh, by use, I think using the first person is another really great trick in terms of having her tell the story. And yeah. And this, this is quite certainly historically true to the extent that all of the contemporary historical accounts are these poetic tales written by quote-unquote historians who are really just poets and troubadours paid by one side or the other to get their version across. So... And, and Matilda, who wrote poetry and was quite capable of writing her own history, was annoyed um, that her story had been told against her, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So my version, which is, of course, fictional, is just, is, I have it set up structurally so that it is her account, her poetic account of what happened so as to show her version of this historical period. And I have each chapter um, begins with a famous troubadour's account of the events of that chapter where he disparages her. And then I have her tell it straight, so to speak, tell it her way. Her way, yeah. Yeah. So um, I really, that was fun, too, because that also, I think, is a, a hook for a modern reader, a woman telling her own story, speaking in her own voice um, for the first time if she's not been able to. I mean, very few people would have read, very few people were readers, certainly, but what would happen is that these um, accounts by troubadours after they had been written would be, copies would be made and they would be sent to other courts. And then as entertainment in the evening, people would read them aloud, serially. So that is how these accounts spread. And um, while she never wrote one that was distributed in this manner, I, that I have, fictionally, that's what I have happening, that she's written these accounts and that she is sending them out so as to tell her version of events. In the time when her son, ultimately Henry II, is in the ascendant, and she serves, she is Duchess of Normandy. In fact, in that in that later period, and I have that's how she has the power and the time to to do that.
0: You talk about Matilda appealing to women who are empresses inside, and I I love that. And again, from just reading the forward to the book, I. I perceive that you're an empress inside, that there's some of Matilda inside you. And you share very openly, very vulnerably about how deep you had to dig inside of yourself to bring this novel to life. And I I was hoping you could maybe share with everyone listening how did you garner that mental strength to move forward with this what was what was for you at the time a really daunting project you know i think
1: part of it is is growing older and realizing that the time is now
0: Uh
1: and you know i started the book it's been more than 20 years since I started it. So I certainly started it as, as a younger woman. In fact, I, I know exactly um, when it was because I said to myself that I had to finish the first draft before my daughter was born and she just turned 21. So <laughs> The first draft was finished 21 years ago, um, pre-internet. And she, um, part of me is you know watching my daughter grow up all these years and, and she watched me back, certainly. And um, she knew that this was something that I had attempted to do and not yet done successfully. And there came to be a certain, you know, then in my later 40s, I realized it it just, there was this sense of, I had done an injustice to myself, not to have done the thing I wanted very badly to have done. And I didn't like modeling that for her, Mm -hmm. that I had given up that I had not defined myself on my own terms, that I, there was something I knew I could do. I knew I had the talent to do it. So it was just the effort to keep at it when I heard no, and to keep at it until I could find the yes. Mm -hmm. And I, that's the thing that's actually given me the most joy has been to see, I have a son as well, uh, as you see, in my kids' eyes, the pride that they felt when I had done it, when the book was in a bookstore, when the, when they saw it on for sale online, when they came to my book party—I mean, I, I could see that I had that I had done something in particular to make them proud of me, and I, that mattered more than the than even my pride in myself, actually. Yeah. And uh, that's that's hard to pull off too with kids <laughs> you know you, you, I mean, they're, they're, they're grown but but even so I mean I, actually my daughter who's um uh in college she she said to me um a couple of years ago she said that one of her professors had read the book oh wow and she that was very almost shocking to her that not only does this book exists in the world I guess this must have been right when it, it came out last year um that not only exists in the world, but someone that she put on a pedestal was reading my book, you know? So, so that was wonderful. But in terms of Matilda being like me, I mean, I think that when I wrote it, it's almost like playing a role or, and then it's really, I felt the same way when I would teach a class as a professor, that I would walk into the classroom and adopt the role of A (laughs) well-prepared, engaging professor. Mm -hmm. And I would have to draw upon, I was certainly prepared, that's for sure, but I had to draw upon the parts of my personality that were suited to that role. And with this too, when I wrote the book, the parts of me that were imperial and autocratic and um, ambitious and vengeful and um, passionate and disappointed. All those parts of me I could draw upon. But she certainly, I have other parts that certainly aren't a part of her character. And she has parts of her character that I don't share. Uh, but I did become her in the moments that I was sitting there writing. And you know, I always play uh, period music. Oh, wow. And since I, I bought all the period music on CD in the 90s, and uh, I, that's still how I get there is I pop the CD and a CD player. And all of a sudden, when 12th century music is enveloping me, it doesn't matter that I'm on a computer. I really can be
0: mm-hmm.
1: there. Um, but, you know, and then the moment when Matilda decides to not take no for an answer, and even though it's a fait accompli that Stephen has taken the throne and taken control of the royal treasury and had himself crowned and his wife crowned and named his son to be his heir. All these things are happening and she has to find a way to say no. It's it's almost not one moment. It's having to have the strength to do that over and over and over again for a period of years. So that's, I don't think I had to come up with superhuman strength in one moment. I think I had to come up with something slightly below that level, but repeatedly. Right. And I think- right. Growing older was was what did the trick. Um, another thing that I uh, rewrote as I grew older were, were the things about parenting. Because certainly when I started the book, I didn't know anything about parenting. I thought I did. But all the sort of ambitions and frustrations of, of a mother, which are also in my book. Because the book is a lot about uh, her relationship with her son, Henry, whom we know as Henry II. Um, You know, she models herself on the Virgin Mary, who has given birth to the Messiah. I mean, in the second half of the book, there's a lot about the cult of the Virgin Mary and and a lot about how she finds a different kind of strength and a different kind of leadership than she thought she would achieve at first. And um, again, I I couldn't have pulled that off had I not been a parent for so long. Maybe if I had, I not had a son. But so I could
0: draw on all that. Interesting. You know, you you said a moment ago that your your first draft of Matilda Empress was pre-internet. But reading this novel, it's very clear that this book was researched thoroughly. And I I'm just curious as to how you did your research and how you came to grasp all of the period detail, I mean, the voice, fashion, speech patterns, everything. Did you come to add this vivid detail in the subsequent post-internet drafts? Or did most of this detail appear in your first pre-internet draft?
1: It actually did. Um, I used to do something that I... I think is superior to internet research, which is. I, I used to go to a wonderful bookstore in New York City called The Strand, and I would find all these nineteenth-century reprints of older material, and you know yeah, translations God. from the Latin, and you know each book's a dollar, and I would buy all these dusty books of you know medieval cookery books and and all kinds of things, and I then had them all over, loaded with post-its, about where I would fit in various things. And it was very, so the information that I gathered was, I gathered it arbitrarily. There was a lot of whimsy to it. And I think the problem with internet research is if you pull up medieval recipes for venison, the first three that pop up are going to be in everybody's book. Mm Right, right. Yeah, recipes that I have are going to be in nobody's book. I guess you know I just happened upon this, you know, one copy of something really obsolete, and I luckily I still have all those books so because I'm writing a book now that's set in the 14th century. So I, I have lots of more material that I have not. Lots of post-its I have not yet explored. Um. But one one thing that did change, though, is during the 20 years that I worked on the book, um, fashion historians decided that there was a change in fashion in the period uh, in which my book takes place, in particular in the 1120s. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. And I knowing that I cannot ignore now that I know, I know. And so I don't like the places in the book where her dresses are wrong. And so I actually talk about that moment where she discovers that the women are all making changes. They're making their stockings more narrow. They're making their sleeves more pointed. They're pulling their waist in more tightly. And I have that be something that she's thinking about and, and that she's making changes because certainly as a leader, she wants to lead in every capacity. And she was quite attractive, and she she knew that all the importance of of appearance, and she wears. the the colors of England as much as she can, red and and gold, red and yellow, and and white she wears as a color of the virgin later on. So she's very concerned with her symbolic appearance and her splendor. So I was able to do that. And I especially want to get all these details right because it's really a pet peeve of mine when I read a book of historical fiction and everything about it is modern except for the characters' names (laughs) or the history. Well, the detail is just so so shallow that it doesn't change the story and to me I wanted to write a story that this is a medieval woman so she should think medieval thoughts and she should relate to her you know her peers in a way that medieval people related to one another and she shouldn't she shouldn't be so much a modern girl that it wouldn't make sense that this story happened to her so, it's very important to me that it be historical through and through to the extent that I can make that happen. And voice is a huge part of that. I mean, I've read certainly in translation, but all the contemporary accounts that still exist of this period, I have read. I mean, there are only maybe, I don't know, seven, eight contemporary historians from the 12th century whose work is that I had access to, but there's certainly lots of poets. And I also read all the poets. I've read so many letters. There are many collections of letters and the voices in those letters, I found really, really helpful because I was writing something in the first person. So how people wrote letters to one another, I have a lot of letters in my book too, because I got very excited about all the rituals of letter writing and I also was able to explore what the other characters were thinking and get that out there when they wrote it down in a letter uh, so yeah i I left no stone unturned, and i had I had a whole generation to do it in so <laughs> <laughs>
0: right 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 um, so we're we're running out of time here, but before we close, I wanted to just ask you one more question so each each chapter in your novel, Matilda Empress, is a scroll. It's Matilda writing from her point of view, uh, telling her story in her own scroll. And those scrolls you've divided and broken down into the seasons, the seasons of the year. And I'm curious, how did you come to that choice in terms of structure? Well, I think a lot, so much
1: went on in in the war. And I did have to, and was encouraged to, in, in the editing process along through the years, to do some consolidation because there were so many battles in which nothing, the needle did not move. So, and there are so many castles and sometimes there were battle after battle, not only with no outcome, but with a similar chain of events leading to no outcome. So certainly I tried to pick and choose among all the things that did actually happen. And I found it a way to give the reader some clarity about how much time was passing and what I tried to have within each season, something that had to do with the war and and what had happened of import in that season. And then something about her relationship with the man she loved, with her son, with her husband, with, that sort of advanced all those different storylines in each season.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But it also was a way of simplifying and clarifying as opposed to just having you know dates go by. And I also, I notice as a reader, sometimes it's hard to remember. And, and does it even matter if it's April or May, usually not. So spring, I thought was clear enough um, for the reader and for me. And it also, you know, it helps with pacing, I think, to to simplify it in that way. And it seemed also reasonable that that's how much information would be in a small scroll because all the scrolls were in a trunk. And you might take out one for an evening to re- have, have that be read aloud to your guests after dinner.
0: I love it. Um, so so, Lise, uh, we are out of time but I am so happy to get to speak to you about your wonderful book, Matilda Empress. And can you, just before we sign off, can you tell our listeners where they can buy this book?
1: They can buy it everywhere, certainly at, at independent bookstores, but also at the big ones and they can buy it online and they can buy it in hardback paperback or ebook. So which uh, whatever suits them. So
0: wherever and however books are sold. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you, Lee, so much for joining me and everyone. Lee Zarin, check out her novel *Matilda Empress*.